Oh, How Good It Is, and In Christ Alone. Those are two of the songs that we have encouraged you as a congregation to uh, memorize uh, this year so that whether we have PowerPoints or whether the copier machine uh, works or not, we can sing these songs from memory. I encourage you to meditate on, on these songs and, and worship the Lord uh, together, not only when we are here, but also in your families, with your children. Hope you do so. Hope you uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through uh, 33, 31. As you turn there, I want to remind you that we are going through a series in the book of Acts, and uh, our prayer is that the Lord enables us to reflect more carefully and deeply uh, the way God worked in the early church. And may his work, may his power among us abound just as it has in the early church. And here's the word of the Lord for us this morning in the book of Acts, chapter 19. Chapter 9, verses 19. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has not he come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to, help, to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. but They were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts this morning. Let's ask the Lord to use it to speak to us and to change us. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Gracious God, we are never more privileged than when we get to open your word, which you have revealed to your people. We ask that you, we would listen intently now, that we would listen through the softening of your Holy Spirit of our hearts, so that we may indeed be willing and ready to embrace this word, to embrace your commands, to embrace your work among us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
the effects of the power of Christ. Last week, we considered the power of the risen Christ in the conversion of Saul. And um, we saw how God took this initiative despite Saul's inclinations. Sometimes we think that God responds to our initiatives. Friends, it's the other way around. God takes the initiative and he calls us to respond. Always. Always. And we saw how that was so true and so vivid in the story of Saul's conversion last week. And we also saw that all of this happened because it was God's choice. Well, today we will consider the effects of the power of Christ, both in Saul's life and in the life of the church. True conversion produces a new kind of fruit. That's how you know that God has truly given us a new heart. A new heart, a new nature, produces new effects in us. Friends, we live in a day and age when... If you go to the bookstores, you see a a growing section of self-help books. What is the one echo in each of those books, or in most of those books? That there's something in you, there's something you have that you can use to improve yourself. At the heart of the message of Christianity is the exact opposite. There's nothing in you that you can use or improve upon to become a better person. Something needs to happen to you that comes from outside of you. And that's the power of God to give us a new heart, a new nature. And the text we have for us today shows us what are some of those effects of a true change that God brings to us. Now, these are, what we see today in this passage are not the only effects of the power of Christ, but these are some of the true signs that God indeed has done something in us, both powerfully in Saul's life and then in the life of the church. What are some of the effects of the power of Christ in our lives as individuals, in our lives as a church? Well, I invite you to, to consider these questions as we plunge into this passage. If you'd like to take notes, here's the first point. First effect. The first one is this. Conversion brings us into the community of Christ's disciples. Conversion brings us into the community of Christ's disciples. Look at verse 19, the passage that we began reading. By the way, if, uh, if you don't have your Bibles open, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Everything we'll say today is from this book. And even if you're a visitor and you're not used to, to reading the Bible and don't know how to find your way, I um, hope you'll find it somewhere uh, at page 954 and uh, follow along in, in, in the Scriptures. Here's verse 19b. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is the first thing we we're told after Saul's conversion after his baptism, that he stayed with the disciples at Damascus for some days. The very ones he was seeking to persecute now become his community, the ones with whom he begins to associate. Now, the same pattern is repeated in verse 26. Look at verse 26. 
when Saul gets to Jerusalem, look at what he does. When he had heard, or when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Now, think with him for a moment. If there's any person on the planet who had a reason not to join the disciples, to stay away from them, to sort of pretend like he's a closet Christian, some of you know what I'm talking about, if there's any man who had reasons to do this, it was Paul. It was this man, Saul. He had persecuted these believers up until now. He was an open enemy of them. He, set, he was set on harming them. And after his conversion, he could have kept the distance. But he didn't. He attempted to join them. Well, friends, this is one of the effects of true conversion. One of them of a true change of heart. There is a new desire and a new longing to be with the fellows, with the, with the disciples and with the, with the fellowship of the saints and to associate yourself with them, to love them by joining them. John Stott in his commentary says, Thus Saul was clear about his membership in the new society of Jesus. First in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, he sought out the disciples. He sought to join them. Friend, if you're a Christian, I wonder. I wonder if this characterizes you this morning. Is there such a desire in you? Do you have a desire to spend time with or associate with other believers and to commit yourself to them? Now, if you're not a Christian, you may find this very, very strange that you would hear a pastor speak about this idea of desiring to be with other Christians, of taking time out of your week every week and out of your week throughout, throughout the week to meet up with other Christians. This may sound weird and strange to you. You may even think that if this is what it takes to be a Christian, you're not ready. But friends, I want to make sure you understand what this is truly all about. This desire to be with other Christians is not a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. It's not a prerequisite. Quite the opposite. This desire to be with other Christians is a side effect of the change that God produces inside of us. That's how you know that something has taken place inside of you. When He gives you a new heart and a new nature, and that is manifested by a new desire to be in fellowship with other Christians. That's why this group of people that you see around you this morning, uh, we, we do this every Sunday morning, regularly. And we meet even throughout the week. We meet even Sunday nights. We meet throughout the week. You say, whoa, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready to be this kind of Christian. I, I've even had someone a few years back who was seeking to become a, a part of our congregation said, you know, I, I just want to be a, a Sunday Christian. Said, you know, the reason why you see us so committed and so desiring to do this every Sunday and throughout the week is because God has changed something inside of us. That's the reason. And one of the greatest gifts we give to each other once God has changed us is the gift of presence, the gift of belonging, the gift of accountability. And we realize that God called us to follow Him 
together as a body. So if you're not a Christian and you're lacking this desire to be with Christians regularly, don't be surprised. We're not surprised at that. And we're not asking you to have that desire prying to be a Christian. It's a promise God, that God gives us that once you become one, you will have it. Now, if you are a Christian and you're lacking that desire, I would say there's a red flag. Something's not right. Because when God gives us a new birth, there are new desires to join the disciples of Jesus. So conversion brings us into the community of Christ's disciples. This is one of the effects of true conversion. That's the first one we see here in this passage. Here's a second, second effect, a second point. Conversion enables us to speak about Jesus. Now, some of you can, might can be completely lost when you, get, when you hear this one. You mean, if I become a Christian, I have to start speaking about Jesus? Again, this speaking about Jesus is not a prerequisite to becoming a Christian. It's the stuff that happens after you become one. And you know what? It's inevitable. If God changes your heart, you begin speaking about that and that, the person who changed you. It's inevitable. Look at verse 20. Immediately, he, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. Did you, did you get that adverb? Immediately. No time to waste. Immediately. And notice what he was saying in, in, in the same verse. He was saying that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 22, But Saul increased all the more in, in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is what Paul was doing after his conversion. He went around speaking about Jesus and declaring that Jesus indeed was the Son of God and he was the Messiah. Now, why are these two titles important? You know, it's not hard to say with your mouth, you know, Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is the Messiah. It's, you know, you can do that and still only pay lip service. There's something profound happening when these words come out of the mouth of Saul. And there's something profound when these words are spoken to Jews. Because Jews were longing for the Messiah. The Jews were longing for a, a God-sent deliverer. And they were expecting this Messiah to come and, and inaugurate and bring the reign of God on earth. The Jews were expecting for the Messiah, but the news is that Saul proclaims that this Messiah has already come, and it's Jesus. Yes, the one crucified, the one betrayed by the Jewish leaders, the one who was handed over to the Romans and crucified. He was God, the God-sent Redeemer, the God-appointed Rescuer who would fulfill the hopes, the greatest hopes of the Jewish people. Now, friend, just think of this paradox. God's solution to the deepest longings in our life is found in a crucified man. Just think for a moment. God's solution to the deepest longings in our life is found in a crucified man who died in our place. What does that say about our greatest need as human beings? We may not get this connection. You, you may still be confused just as many of the Jewish people were. I don't get it. Why is this God's solution to our greatest longing? Isn't this an example of how God gives us what we don't expect? 
well, it's true that a crucified Messiah is not what any of us expected from God. And yet this is what God gave us. Not because God doesn't love us. Not because he doesn't know what we truly need. Quite the opposite. God knows every one of our longings and aspirations better than we know them ourselves. And God's solution is to give us a crucified man who died in our place because through Christ's death and resurrection, God has decided to change us and to fulfill our deepest needs and longings. But Saul clarified another important title about, about Jesus. He's not just the Messiah, the expected Redeemer. He was God's Son, the Son of God. He was not like the, the previous Redeemers or prophets that God had sent. This one was the only begotten Son of God. He was divine. And by the way, here in the book of Acts, this phrase, this title given to Jesus as the Son of God is the only time in Acts when we see this title. If we read back in the Passion Narratives, we would read that this is the reason why Jesus was crucified in the first place. Because he claimed to be the Son of God. And now Saul says, yes, this was the reason why he was crucified. I'm telling you, this is the reason why I am changed. Because Jesus is the Son of God. You see, friends, when you proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, it's not just a, a title without any power or meaning. Really, the meaning behind that title is that he has the authority of God behind him. When, when Jesus is claimed to be the Son of God, he claims to have divine authority. And this divine authority was clearly displayed in Saul's life. Remember his conversion? A heavenly light who blinded him for three days? What kind of power is that? And then this heavenly Jesus, this Jesus, Son of God, has the, the power to tell him where to go in Damascus. He changes his address. It tells him what to do. Changes his life. Changes his destiny. Changes his calling. Friends, who in the world has this kind of authority to change a human life and human destiny? To change one's direction in life so radically from the inside? The answer is Jesus, because he is the Son of God. These changes in Saul were effects of the authority of Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus has the authority and the power to make these calls. Do you know why? Because he's the Son of God. Some of us struggle to respond to the call of Christ. Some of us struggle to submit to his authority to actually do what he calls us to do. Have you ever been there? I have. Some of us might be going through this struggle right now. What can help us in this struggle? Well, Saul's preaching can help us big time. Saul's preaching gives us a hint. It's by remembering who Jesus truly is. He's not just a man, not just a mere human rescuer. He is the Son of God. Our greatest challenge in life is to see Jesus for who, who he truly is. The Son of God who created the galaxies, who created every single drop of all the oceans in the world, who created 
all the stars and knows them by name because he gave them the name? This is a Jesus, the Son of God, who calls us. Why would we struggle to obey his call or to follow his command? You remember Jesus was one time in the boat in, in the middle of a storm, and the disciples awaken him. And Jesus wakes up and commands the sea and the wind. And they stop. And the disciples are amazed. And they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Creation does not struggle to obey the voice of its creator. And in Acts 9, Saul is not struggling to obey the voice of Christ. No, he obeys because he's convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. And the effects of this change, of this obedience, is how Saul now starts speaking about Jesus immediately. This change is so dramatic in Saul's life that in Acts 9, it is the crowds in Damascus who are utterly amazed. Who is this? Who has the power to change this? Look at verse 21. Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has not he come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? Who has the ability to cause such a radical change in us. Jesus, as the Son of God. Because Saul was convinced that the one who encountered him and called him was no one else than the very Son of God. Some of us this morning, friends, some of us need to be reminded of what Saul preached about Jesus. He is the Son of God. Why would we struggle when the Son of God calls? Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why Saul begins speaking about Jesus immediately. You're struggling to have courage and zeal how to speak about Jesus you need to be reminded of who is he who called you to speak about him. It is the one who made the galaxies. It is the one who made the stars. It is the one who has the power to change a persecutor into a proclaimer. Friends, conversion enables us to speak about Jesus and as he truly is. And, Paul, and Saul does this not just in Damascus. He does this in Jerusalem as well. Look at verse 28. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of Jesus. Friend, if you're a Christian, have you ever spoken boldly about Jesus? Has conversion produced this effect in you? It is one of the true signs of a true conversion. You begin speaking boldly about Jesus. Again, if, if you've never experienced this, you might want to ask yourself if something truly has happened in your life. Because speaking boldly about Jesus is one of the effects of conversion. But there's a mention in, in this passage, there's a mention about a special group of people whom Saul engaged and Saul sought to speak to. Look at verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists 
Now, why is Saul engaging them? Why is Luke mentioning them as a special group of people whom Saul sought to engage with? Well, because these people are the same who instigated the Jewish leaders against Stephen in chapter 7. It's possible that Saul knew some of them. He was there with them when it happened in chapter 7 and then 8. It's to them that now seeks to speak about Jesus. These Hellenists were given the chance to see the effects of the power of Christ to change one of their own persecutors. And yet, they reject Saul's preaching about Jesus. Worse, they plan to kill Saul just as they plan to kill Stephen. So Saul has to leave Jerusalem as a persecuted fugitive. And the last time Saul left Jerusalem, he did it to arrest the fugitive Christians. And now he leaves Jerusalem as a fugitive Christian himself. Such evangelistic results might feel like a failure. Right? You, you start preaching gospel and these guys are not only rejecting the message, they're rejecting you and kicking you out of the city. Is this a failure? No, it's not. Reality is that conversion enables Saul to speak about Jesus as he truly is to the very persecutors who persecuted Stephen. And this was the greatest change that everyone in Damascus and in Jerusalem saw about Saul. I wonder if this effect is true in you. The amazing change produced by the power of Christ is seen not only in Saul's life, by his desire to join the disciples of Jesus, and by his commitment to immediately start speaking about Jesus, but the power of Christ is seen in another way, in a larger scale, at the level not just of an individual, but at the level of a whole church, a level of number of churches. And this is a third point that I'd like to draw your attention to this morning, the power of Christ in the life of the church. The power of Christ in the life of the church. Look at verse 26. When Saul arrives back at Jerusalem after his conversion and, and seeks to join the disciples, they are afraid of him. And, and no wonder. I mean, they knew him as a persecutor. And they probably figured out that, who knows, perhaps this Saul is so shrewd and wicked that he might pretend to be a Christian in order to really infiltrate among us and to really get us all in trouble. It was a very legitimate fear. But the Lord uses Barnabas to tell the brothers in Jerusalem Saul's conversion. And what is the one effect that, that Barnabas points to to show that something truly has happened in Saul's life? Barnabas points to the fact that in Damascus, Saul preached about the name of Jesus. That is one of the effects of true conversion. And, and so the disciples, when they hear this, they embrace Saul. They, they bring him in. And he becomes one of them. And this is where something incredibly powerful happens. We see the power of Christ in the life of the church when the Hellenists threatened Saul. The brothers could have stayed out of it. They could have let Saul experience what was it like to be at the other end of the persecution. But they didn't. Look at verse 31.
And when the brothers learned this, in other words, they learned about the, persecu- the, the threats of the Hellenists, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, here's what I wonder. I wonder what was going on in the minds of these brothers who actually went down with Saul to Caesarea to protect him from being killed. I wonder what was going on. I wonder if they remembered the persecutions that Saul used to carry out against them, perhaps against some of their own friends and family members. And here now, they are protecting him from being persecuted. This is the power of the gospel to enable us to change not only a persecutor into a proclaimer, but it's able to change and give those persecuted power to forgive and embrace and protect the life of the very one who caused them so much trouble. How can you do that? What kind of human counseling could provide such a change of heart and attitude in these formerly persecuted brothers towards this former persecutor? That they would provide him physical escort to ensure that he was going to be safe. Why would they do that? What kind of human therapy could change the hearts and attitudes of these brothers? Friends, this is the power of the gospel. This is the power of Christ to give us Christians power to forgive because Christ has given us a new nature. Such power to forgive is given only to those who have changed, have been changed by the power of Christ. And this power was experienced not just one by one person, but by the whole church in Jerusalem. That's what's amazing here. It's not just a weird guy who's able to forgive. It's a whole church who's able to embrace Saul, this former persecutor. All of this happened because of the change that happened in them. Ian Murray, in his um, latest biography of, uh, of the late Dr. Lloyd-Jones, describes a challenge that Lloyd-Jones brought as, um, as he began preaching in the mid-1920s. It sa- he says that it was not preaching which fitted into any type which was common in the 1920s. The main challenge for a Christianity which existed not in belief only but in vital force a Christianity which does not merely improve a man, but rather completely changes him. This was a kind of challenge that the preaching of Dr. Lloyd-Jones brought in South Wales and in the UK at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. Oh, friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to understand that the Christian message we proclaim has the power to change, has the power to save. It is a message that God created us in His image and likeness, all of us are, are created with this divine-given dignity, if you will. But all of us have rebelled against God. And we have all a corrupt nature inside of us because the first man of, of the human race, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And therefore, every single human being, with one exception, every single human being inherits a corrupt nature which makes us rebel against God, which makes us, makes us forget about God, which makes, makes us think about ourselves and ignore the ways of God and act against Him. And because of that, we trigger upon ourselves the judgment of God 
the wrath of God. Not only that, but all we think about is ourselves. There's no way we can love other people selflessly. And even when we think we love other people, we always do it because of some deeply hidden, self-centered motivations. To feel good about ourselves, to think about the reputation we get by doing good deeds. Deep inside of us, there's a corrupt nature. The only way for us to be rescued from that is for the Son of God to wash away our sin, to change us from the inside out. And when we repent of our sin, when we entrust our lives into the hands of Christ, when we respond to what God has provided for us, God brings that change in us. And that's manifested in some of these effects that we have heard today. Friend, if you've never experienced this change in your heart, you may have called yourself a Christian for many decades, but you've never experienced these changes. I encourage you, invite you, do it today. Respond to Christ. Ask God to save you. And he will give you a new nature. The power of Christ in the church is seen not just in Jerusalem, but is also seen in, in the summary, in the final summary in verse 31 that Luke includes in us about the church in all Judea, in Galilee, and Samaria. This geographical specificity uh, is not an accident. It's really a, com- a, a summary of the church in Israel's larger territories. God accomplished to gather and call out the followers of Christ from all Israel. Look at verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking the fear of the Lord and in comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the power of Christ operative in the church. Here are five characteristics of the church at this point in the book of Acts. Five characteristics. Uh, very quickly, the church had peace. Now, first and foremost, this referred to peace from the outside pressure that was coming because of the persecution that, that Saul had instigated. The Lord brought a season of peace over the life of the church. What a great gift this was. But during this time of peace, the church didn't take it easier on following their Lord. No, look at what happened to the church during this time of peace. The church was being built up. The church multiplied. This characteristics, these two characteristics, the, the second and the fifth, have something in common that's pretty, pretty important for us to get. They're in the passive. And if, if you don't know much about grammar, that's okay. I'll tell you what it, this means. If a verb in the, is in the passive, it means you don't do the action. Somebody does the action on you. And these two verbs, these two characteristics are in the passive, meaning somebody else other than the church does this action. It was being built up, and it multiplied. Who did this? God. God. Oh, friends, some people today feel that we, human beings, are responsible to build up the church and to multiply it, and we devise all kinds of creative strategies to make this happen. Some people today even feel that if we just prayed hard enough, we would bring revival upon the church. Oh, friends, That's not true. Seasons of the church being built up, seasons when the church multiplies, seasons of revival is totally in God's control. He is the one who's doing it. He's the one who makes it happen. Does this mean that we should sit 
passively and not worry about anything? Absolutely not. Look at what active characteristics the, the believers did do. Look at characteristics three and four. Here are the active things that the, the believers did. They walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit. That was their part. To walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit. What does it mean for a church to walk in the fear of the Lord? Well, it means first and foremost that we would be more concerned about what the Lord says about us than, than what people say about us. We would be more concerned about the reputation we have before God than the reputation we have with people. How often, though, we show to be more concerned about what people say about us than what the Lord says. How often we walk more in the fear of man than in the fear of the Lord. How often we walk more for the admiration of others than the admiration of the Lord. How often churches fall in this trap of hoping they do all kinds of things to hope that visitors and newcomers would really like them. Oh, friends, if we would recover this fear of the Lord, if we would walk in the fear of the Lord more than in the fear of people, it means that in everything we do, we do with a clear consciousness of the presence of the Lord in our midst. So whether we think about music or we think about how to deal with sin or how to deal with unrepentant sin in the church, our first concern is not about what we prefer or what outsiders prefer, but about what the Lord says and what is pleasing to Him and what honors Him. Who cares if others might not come to us? If the Lord is here, who cares? Who cares if we will be thrown out of Jerusalem? If the Lord is going with us, what does it mean for a church to live in the fear of the Lord? You know, I wonder if Luke would have written about us here in Austin, about Park Hills Baptist Church, would he write this about us? And then, of course, we, we think that the greatest challenge for the church is to, to reach the lost. I want to submit to you this morning that the greatest challenge for the church is not how to reach the lost, but how to walk in the fear of the Lord. When a church walks in the fear of the Lord, the Lord will multiply it. The Lord will build up that church. And then, of course, there's the, the walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean for a church to live and walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? It means that as a church, we know that our ultimate resources for the life and growth of our church is not what we have, but what the Holy Spirit supplies to us. We ask the Holy Spirit to supply all that we need to carry out the work God commanded us. Although he turns, when he finally accepted the first pastorate, he wrote a letter to the church and he said this, Whatever may happen, our cause must triumph. And if we fail, God forbid, but if we fail, what we stand for will not go on, will go on and will in the end prove supreme. 
This is a spirit in which I am taking up this task, realizing that human endeavor at its highest is only feeble and that our only hope is that we shall be given of the Holy Spirit freely. That's what it means to walk in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul, in, the, in, in some of his letters, like 2 Corinthians, when he boasted, he boasted about his weaknesses. Because the power of the Spirit of Christ was working through his weaknesses more than through his strengths. I wonder if we would have the boldness, the courage, to walk this way in the comfort of the Spirit. To boast more about our weaknesses and rely more on the strength and the supply of the Holy Spirit. Friends, without this walking in the fear of the Lord, without this walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we can do all the outreach we want. There will be no lasting results. Some results might be there for sure, but no lasting, no eternal results. So these are some of the effects of the power of Christ in the life of Saul, in the life of the church. Christ changes us into new beings so that we desire to have communion with the disciples of Christ. We desire to make known the name of Jesus. We are able to forgive and protect each other, and we are able to walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And when these things are happening, we wait on the Lord and trust in Him for seasons of peace, for seasons of growth, for seasons of multiplication. May these effects and the power of Christ be true in us. Amen. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise your name because your gospel is a power to change. To change us from rebels into worshipers. Changing us from being people who ignore you to to being people who adore you and embrace you and embrace your people together. Most gracious Father, we pray that you would let this power continue to be manifested in our midst today. And as we prepare this morning to celebrate an evidence of that power in the life of of a dear beloved brother, Gary Talent, we pray that you would use his testimony of the gospel and his celebration of baptism to embolden us, to strengthen us, to Look forward to more evidences of your power in our lives. We pray that you would be glorified in us this morning as we continue to celebrate this power, to change, and to proclaim the name of Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.